Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. One of the requests we get most often from listeners, particularly those who are just starting out, is about how to build a portfolio, not just buying stocks indiscriminately, but intentionally creating the sort of portfolio that you're really proud to own uh, and that you want to hang on to. You don't want to ditch the lot when they all fall to pieces. But they also want the flexibility to buy the stocks they like. So what are the key principles that everyone can use? Today I'm joined by Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of Motley Fool, a stock research newsletter and portfolio manager. Scott is regularly in the media uh, about a whole variety of finance topics, not just stocks, uh, and he's sharing his thoughts with us today on how to create a portfolio. Scott, thanks so much for joining me. Gemma, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So Scott, I've been thinking about this topic for a while, actually. We get it quite frequently through the emails and I've been putting it on the back burner because I didn't want to tell people to buy a bunch of ETFs. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that is the common recommendation. So you want diversification in your portfolio, get, a, get yourself a bunch of ETFs or index funds or, you know, really simple stuff. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know people join NabTrade or any other broker or investment portfolio service precisely because they don't want to do that, right? (laughs) They want to buy stuff that they're excited about. And it becomes quite challenging then to say, well, it's great you want to buy stocks, but you want to build a portfolio over time. It's unlikely you're going to want just one stock for the rest of your life. So is building a portfolio just buying a bunch of stocks that you like, or is it a bit more complicated than that? Yeah, really great question. So look, I think for most people, ETFs can be a solution, right? So the last thing I want to say is don't do that. If there are people listening who want to do that, then great, they can use NabTrade or another broker and do exactly that. So first things first, you can do it that way. As you say, most people don't want to, most people listening to this are doing it specifically because they don't want to, right? You want to be active as an investor. You're trying to find the best businesses of tomorrow. You're trying to find the ones that are going to give you the sorts of returns you're looking for, right? Otherwise, buy the ETF, go fishing, knock yourself out. But if you, <laughs> if you, if you care about investing, if you're, if you're listening to us now, the fact we're talking about it, what I do for a quid, this is exactly about trying to find the right stocks and, to your point, build the best possible portfolio. And that's where there are kind of different ways of doing the same thing. Now, that's all preamble to your actual question. Um, there's two ways of looking at a portfolio. I mean, if you are able to, you can literally buy the best companies you can find and they, they end up in whatever form or fashion they end up in. If you're right, that's still perfectly fine because if you buy enough market-beating stocks, you end up with a market-beating portfolio by definition. The problem with most people is that portfolios have to serve a particular purpose for them, even if it's not specific, right? So if you want a low volatility experience when you're investing because you just aren't someone who loves the, the highs and lows and you can't cope with that, then you need to build a portfolio. You need to select your stocks to deliver that particular goal. If you've got a particular view about an industry or a technology or a, a something and you want to build for that, then again, same thing, right? You're building a portfolio for that purpose. Now, that can be, again, for those people, just literally find the best X number of stocks, and we'll talk about numbers in a minute, um, and do that. That can be a perfectly fine portfolio, as long as you acknowledge that you're building it with a particular perspective. I think that's what most investors, I won't say get wrong, because that sounds a bit harsh, but, but what we need to help most investors with is to understand your own risk tolerance, your own personality as an investor, and your goals, and then look at your stock selection slash portfolio, because again, it's kind of interchangeable, in that light. And that's where building a portfolio, kind of beginning with the end in mind, that idea of where do I want to get to? How am I going to get there? That's the portfolio bit. And then you work out, you know, the architect designs the house and the builder then puts the bricks in place. You need to be the architect and the builder 
it's probably a horrible analogy, but to get that right, that's what you're looking for. I, that's a spectacular answer. And you're absolutely right. Being clear about what those different objectives are is really important because we don't necessarily talk about it that much with people when they're starting out. You right. sort of assume people know what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and it is where that idea that you just buy a predetermined portfolio like an EDF has some limitations, right? It's really easy to give that simple answer and it may not be correct. Yeah. So what are these elements then of building a well-chosen, well-structured portfolio in your right. view? So it comes down to, again, go, I'll go back to the, the goals or aims of the portfolio. The, the, the vanilla version, the bit in the middle, if you like. So if we think about the different possibilities, let's start in the middle and work out to the edges. In the middle, you want to build a portfolio that is diversified suitably, that has the right components worth of, again, depending on your particular style, you want some core solid kind of, you know, stalwart, uh, call them what you will, ballast um, stocks that really form the bulk of the base of that portfolio, right? The, the really important quality companies are gonna take you where you need to go. You wanna layer on top of that then, so you might call that core. The next layer up, if you think about a pyramid, the next layer up is probably a smaller proportion. And that's your kind of your growth stocks, right? So that's where you can take a little bit more risk for a little bit more return because you feel like you've got the base sorted out. You're not taking portfolio size risk. You're saying, well, okay, I've got my blue chips of X, Y, and Z. I'll add to that some growth stocks or I'll take a particular view on a particular area or opportunity. So that might be, you might love mining, you might love tech, you might uh, want to pay up for some high priced buy now pay later stocks, for example, right? We know they're popular. That's that's your kind of either growth element. They're the ones you're making some bets is probably, gambling is kind of a tough analogy to use, right? <laughs> yeah. I think it's valid, by the way, but it's a whole different conversation because uh, it's all about the odds. But, you know, a job is to assess probability. That's, you know, gambling and investing, we like to pretend they're different because gambling somehow seems bad and investing somehow good. They're really not that different, but that's a whole different topic. Um, the, the I will talk to you about that later. So <laughs> I right. got that question uh, from the ABC when I was on radio and they said, you know, isn't this like encouraging people to gamble? And I was like, well, not really. We, <laughs> right, gambling, right, right. the house always wins. That's and the net positive expected return is the difference, right? Yeah, whereas when you are investing in the share market, as long as you're not buying absolute rubbish or highly speculative stuff, then theoretically those companies will increase in value over time and everybody wins. It's a completely different outcome. Even Charlie Munger himself has used betting analogies to talk about the odds of success and, and basically buying stocks that where the odds are in your favor, where the chance of winning is greater than the risk you're taking. That's exactly what investing is. So, you know, is it gambling? Well, it depends. If you use gambling in a pejorative sense, nothing like it. If you if you consider the whole thing a, a spectrum of assessing probability, then it's kind of exactly the same. Right? The same skills come to bear. Now, to your point, if you understand that it's a negative expected outcome with betting on the horses or the dogs or the trots or the football, then you're going to take a different view or require a higher return to make that bet. So it's all about the expected return and the odds of actually you know delivering some sort of better than average skill or, or stock picking ability in this case to deliver that sort of return. I think that point about better than average is really important because the average right. in gambling is zero. Well, it's less than zero because the house wins, Because right? the house always wins, yes. Right. So, so at best, you're yes. going to get zero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas the average, if you are investing, is, mm -hmm. well, let's say 8% because I can't be bothered to calculate <laughs> it, depending on your time frame, right? right. So yeah. let's say yeah. 8%, yeah. including yields yeah. over time. Right. So you're, you're measuring your success mm -hmm. as the probability of being better than 8% yes. Yes. rather than better than zero. And even, that, even if you're worse than average, you still get a positive return. 
Yeah. So again, you know, in gambling, you start negative and then get worse. Yeah. In investing, you start strongly positive. And again, that 8%, this one, I was talking to this about a colleague yesterday, 8%, 10%, whatever number you use, mm. feels really low, right? Like yeah. you get out of bed for 8%, probably not. Mm. If you compound that, the ASX has gone from, Vanguard have these numbers, from 10 grand to 140 grand, give or take from memory, over 30 years, right? So mm. if you'd said to someone 30 years ago, 1989, mm. give, me, give me 10 grand, I'll give you 140 grand back in 30 years. Now, assuming you trusted the person, yeah. it's a no-brainer, right? <laughs> yeah. But if you said to someone, give me 10 grand, I'll give you 8% a year, 9% a year, then look at it. Like, I'm not going to do that. Why would I bother? Boring. And that's and that's so the portfolio thing. Just to, just to drag it back from wherever I took mm, us. Then sorry, yeah, um, we went into gambling. We're talking <laughs> no, we, about building a portfolio. We can go back there. The um, th- that's the whole idea, right? Is is you want to build a portfolio that gives you that sort of return, ideally better than that, better mm. than average, um, over time. So the last then layer, so we talk about core and then growth. The last layer for those who want to is kind of this optional layer of some degree of speculation, right? Now, I'm not a speculator as an investor. I don't do that. But there is a, there is a point at the top of the pyramid where we're kind of a nation of gamblers. So back to the gambling thing, right? <laughs> if people want to have a punt, if they want to make strike it rich on the next big biotech, the next big miner, the next big fintech, the next big something, mm. uh, it's one of those things where I would generally say don't do it, right? Because there's no need to and your chances of being right are un- unknown. You just Maybe they're terrible, maybe they're great. You don't know, right? So that can be kind of, maybe that is even a negative net expectation. But if you're going to do something anyway, mm. if you think about it in a portfolio context, that's really useful, right? Because you start to say to yourself, well, I'll leave... 2%, 1%, 5% of my portfolio, and that's my play money. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the, there's the value there of if you need to separate out how you invest, you you don't end up speculating the whole portfolio because you've thought about your portfolio construction and said, I'm gonna leave that percentage to go and make some kind of crazy lotto ticket bets. Mm. And that way you kind of, you, you save yourself from doing nothing and getting frustrated or doing too much because you don't really have any rules around it. So part of a portfolio is understanding your own rules based on your own mentality, your own risk tolerance, your own preference as an investor. And if you start to get that stuff right, it gives you a framework as to how you're investing your money, how you're picking stocks, what role those stocks have in your portfolio. And that's really, you know, where people get themselves in trouble is when things go badly on the market or with their own stocks, right? We say to our own members, like we tell them what they should buy. But I say regularly, don't. but don't buy it unless you actually believe in what I'm saying. Don't just do the Scott says, because as soon as things go slightly bad, they're blaming bloody Scott Phillips who bloody told me to buy this stock. And so that gets terrible. Or if they say, no, actually, but I believed in the case. And just because the shares are down, I got why I was buying. I was buying it for the right reasons. I had a level of conviction. Unless the facts have changed, I'm okay to stick with that. So if you know why you're buying something and how it fits, you're much less likely to be scared out of it if things start to get a bit rocky from time to time. Yeah, or the or the thesis changes, right? Sometimes the environment changes, and then but at least you went into it yes, understanding yes, yes. that. And, and you can always, if the thesis does change, then you actually do want to sell, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't get scared out of something just because of volatility. The difference there is have, have the facts changed? The old the old line of you know when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Which I think was John Maynard Keynes, I think. Mm. Um, maybe it was him. Uh, that whole idea. <laughs> it's always Keynes. Yeah, <laughs> if all else fails. Yeah, it sounds impressive too. I was going, oh really? That's yeah, impressive. yeah, yeah. Um, but separating that out, so you know if if. If the facts change, you should absolutely change your mind. Mm. But if they haven't changed, having the conviction in the first place and knowing why you're buying something, how much of it, what what role it has in your portfolio, you're much less likely to get scared out of it mm. rather than selling rationally, deliberately for thesis-busting reasons, as you say. So this leads really well into the next question. I'm setting it up. This is not Keynes, and you know it isn't Keynes because it is, as Mike Tyson said, <laughs> everyone's yeah, got other. a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I love that. Um, <laughs> You wouldn't have thought he was a great orator or one of them. <laughs> we're going to be one of the most quoted, but it's an incredibly good statement because it's, 
you know, the investment principle is, yeah. you know, everyone's got a plan until they lose 30%. And then right. suddenly right. your plan's out the window. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you manage your emotions and your behavior? Yeah. So the principle's excellent. So we've got a diversified portfolio. We understand what we're putting in there. We've got a core. Mm-hmm. We take a little bit more risk with a few things, but a, you know, a specific amount of our portfolio, yeah. right? Yeah. So we're going to dedicate a little bit to the crazy stuff just mm-hmm. for fun, mm-hmm. if that's what we want to do. Yeah, Some totally. people don't. Um, but then something something happens, right? right? And the right. market will always do something. Yes, yes. How do you manage yourself? Um, I, I mean, Iron Mike knows his stuff, right? So let's uh, let's let's, 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 <laughs> clearly, let's, let's acknowledge that. Well, I'm not going to tell him he doesn't. You can yeah. tell him. <laughs> yeah, no, if he's listening here, I'm a big fan, Mike. Yeah. Um, I'm sure this is too, by the way. Um, <laughs> so uh, the other one is the no plan survives the first contact with the enemy, right? Same kind of ah. idea. That the whole idea that you know at some point the best laid plans and. I think the to, to kind of continue the analogy, whether it's boxing or, um, or, or or war games, if you have literally war gamed it in the context we use that term, to think about what would happen if these things were to happen, right? Because that gives you, to my mind anyway, the best chance of, of actually, if you can pre-imagine it, if you can literally work it through yourself, the old sports visualization thing, right? If you can say, well, at some point, my portfolio will be down 30%, it just will, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it's been 10 years since that last happened. That means that we're frankly closer than we were 10 years ago by definition to the next one. Maybe it's a year away, maybe it's 10 years away, who knows? But it will happen at some point. And so everyone of our listeners now should be thinking to themselves, right, if my portfolio fell 30%, how would I feel? Mm-hmm. What would I do about it? And what would I tell myself at that point from this vantage point today, right? So it's being able to consciously kind of foresee the range of outcomes and kind of, not necessarily, you can't lock in a behavior, but, but psychologists tell us the best thing the best thing we can do generally with any decision is the old pre-commitment bias, right? So it's the idea of, I will lock in a decision so that future Scott doesn't have to worry about it because at that point when I don't want to invest, I want to spend the money or when I want to sell or when I want to do something else, if I've already pre-committed that decision, now you can't literally pre-commit to do nothing in that case. You're always free to do something. But if you already thought that through and thought, okay, well, if I like company A today and nothing changed other than the share price in a year, two years, five years, do I expect it to be worth permanently less or is this going to be one of those periods like the GFC where frankly, that was time to be buying, not selling? Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing is, so pre-commitment, one thing, the other thing is history itself. If you go back and look at that same Vanguard chart I talked about, the 87 crash now fallen off that 30 year chart, right? Because yeah. I'm getting old. But if, but even the GFC, if you look at that now in the context of the line before and after that, it's visible, but not particularly big. Which sounds kind of weird for those of us who lived through it because it was a big deal at the time, emotionally scarring, like people still talk about it. But if you look at that graph and say from 89 to today, what is that shape of that graph? It's up and to the right. And I don't say that as a, as a Pollyanna, but history tells us these things happen. Markets bounce back to much higher than they started. It can take some time. But the combination of the pre-commitment and kind of learning from history should keep us as protected as we can be from that. Now, to your point about how do you do it from a portfolio perspective, the answer is probably asset allocation, quite honestly. If you can't look at a 30% fall, if you've got a $100,000 portfolio and you can't stomach the idea that might be worth 70 at some point, then you need to do some other things to make sure it doesn't happen. And that's probably an asset allocation. Now we're talking about stocks specifically here, but it may be a cash buffer. It may be some property, maybe some fixed interest. If you need, if you desperately can't, because it will happen, right? It will, as sure as you and I are both here, at some point in the next, call it 20 years, so I can be absolutely sure, <laughs> it'll fall 30%. And so mm. if you can't, if you can't stomach the fact that it will happen, mm. then you have no interest being in assets that can fall that much because they will. Yeah. So the first thing, when we talk about portfolio, you, we're talking really about the stock portfolio. Mm. But if you kind of take the pyramid down another level that we kind of didn't talk about, before that is actually asset allocation. So how much do you want in stocks? Now, for me personally, I'm a shares guy, so you'd expect me to say this maybe. Mm. Um, although I think I'm a shares guy because of it rather than vice versa. 
I, I have my house, but everything else I have is in shares. Yeah. I have no investment property, I have no bonds, I have no term deposits, and it will always be that way because I think that's my best chance of maximizing my long-term returns. Now, I'm gonna wear a whole lot of volatility on the way through. For the record, my mother-in-law's portfolio is entirely in shares, she's retired, and we're using that for income. I think that's completely reliable as long as I do it well. So. Again, I'm a shares guy, so maybe people are saying, well, yeah, of course he's gonna say that, and um, that's fair charge, right? I'm probably biased, I'm unconsciously or consciously. Um, but I think the best chance of, in her case, tax-effective income for life, shares are still the best place, right? As long as you can bear those ebbs and flows. Now, if she was doing it by herself without me doing it for her, I dare say she'd probably need to do something different. But if you can, so, so you need to really think that through. If you want the gains, you've got to wear the volatility. That's the ticket to the dance. So the flip side of that question, which is without notice, but the Go other side of it, and this is the one I struggle with more, if something rockets, <laughs> yeah. like it absolutely yeah, yeah. rockets, yeah, yeah. what do you do? Well, you go, I would yeah. never buy it at this price right. based on just my natural tendencies, right? And yeah. somehow it's gone to the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now what do I do? Yeah. Do I sell it and go and buy something else? Do I hang on to it and think it's going to keep going? Do I hang mm. on to it and just assume I'm going to wear some volatility? Mm. I'm guessing you're going to say depends on the stock, right? But it is still, I imagine for a lot of people, very disorientating to see something they thought was going to improve or increase in value incrementally yep. just take off yep. and then you don't know what to do with it. Totally. It depends on the stock. It also depends though on, I, I think for me, investing is largely psychological first, right? Like mm. before anything else. So it depends on the stock. Yes, it depends on the person more than that. If you have a stock, say an afterpay that's gone from you know 2 to 25, mm. That's a twofold gain. Let's just round the numbers up. If you put ten grand in, you've got you know a lot of money, hundred twenty thousand dollars. You think, well, hang on, that's now half my portfolio. Just yeah. let's just some round numbers. Let's assume that's what's happening. It, at some point, if you can't deal with the fact that if that falls by five percent, your portfolio is going to fall hugely, mm. then that tells you exactly what you should do. So back to the volatility question. Um, so it's you know how do you how are you going to feel when that your portfolio is much more volatile because of that? And we talked about diversification and portfolio allocation. You don't, generally speaking, want one stock more than about 10% of your portfolio once it's a decent size. If you're buying your first, second, third, fourth stock, of course they're gonna be large proportions because only, you're only just starting, right? You wanna be building out to about 25 stocks, generally speaking. And over that time, the academics tell us that's the best academically um, for diversification, broad diversification. So I, the research that I saw back when I was at uni, yeah. so I'm sure it's thoroughly out of date <laughs> now, was the incremental improvement mm -hmm. in volatility reduction from 10 to 20 stocks is pretty marginal. Yeah. So tends used to be, right? There you go. So the, the old the old research was 12 to 20. Yeah. And now it's 25 to 30 depending on it, right, sorry. Okay. It, everyone's got a different study, right? And it, yeah. the thing is it depends we won't get too wonky here. Depends on, <laughs> it depends on the makeup of the market and how big the stocks are and how yep. broad the diversification is in the market, right? Mm. So the other thing I would say by the way is diversification is in five banking stocks. So yeah, you know, you can, so this is you can, where it gets oh, interesting. Man, I'm diverse. I've got five stocks. Yeah, but they're NAB, CBA, ANZ, Commonwealth, and Macquarie. Well, guess what? You're not diversified. You've just got five banking stocks, right? Mm. Same with tech stocks. Same with retail stocks. Same with whatever. Pick your names. Um, so diversification is, may not even be important, by the way. Like if you love the banking sector, I'm not sure it's uncomfortable given that this is the NAB Trade Podcast. But let's change to, <laughs> to avoid any issues. Let's yeah. talk about retail. If you yeah. love retail, right, and you want to own five retailers and you're happy with that being 80 percent of your portfolio, that's completely fine, right? That's mm. not. That's not technically diversification, it's not at all. Mm. And it's not textbook portfolio allocation, mm. but that's okay if you wanna take a concentrated risk for a concentrated return. Now, if you're wrong, you're gonna wear it. Mm. So you're gonna have bigger, bigger swings, more volatility, potentially a more disruptive and frankly, loss-making portfolio in one version of the future. Mm. Another version, you're gonna make a fortune. Now, yeah. if, you're, if, you want, if you're that sort of investor who wants to embrace lots of risk because they've just got really, really high conviction ideas, then go for it, but know why you own what you own, how you're building the portfolio. And that's why 
we started when you asked, and I said, well, the, the kind of midpoint, the middle range is the core growth, speculative, diversified, 25 stocks. That's the academic answer, right? And that's still probably the best for most people because if you start there, you're not going to get too surprised or be too whipsawed until you're experienced enough to start making some, again, I say bets, right? Take, make some outsized bets in particular areas where you say, I'm going to move away from this because I want the excess return that comes from that. And that's exactly what we're looking for, right? If I mean, at some point, if you buy 30 stocks, you might as well have an ETF. And so we've we've come, come full circle. So you don't want to do that. But so the basic point is, if you want a diversified portfolio with the market risk, then 25, 30. If you want to start saying, but I think I have an edge in this area. in retail, I know retail really well. I've got these experiences, these stocks, I see these prices, I've got this risk tolerance. Then maybe you want to do that. And that's okay. You have less stocks. You can have more concentration in a particular sector. Mm. Just know that it brings more volatility with it, potentially more outperformance, mm. potentially more underperformance. But if you have to pick stocks, that's what you're here for, right? This is true. I think the example that always springs to mind for me, and maybe because I have no expertise in it, is resources. Mm. There's some people who love resources, right? And that's mm-hmm. their thing. Mm-hmm. They understand it deeply and have an acute kind of feel for that market. Yep. They yep. kind of understand the geography and all of the different elements. Yeah, right. <laughs> I haven't got the faintest idea about yeah. any of those things. The yep. whole idea of going and looking at the mine makes me want to shoot myself. So it's, you know, do you know what I mean? You just go, that's not my thing. Catching the mine tour. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So I am the kind of person who needs to take market risk with that. I have no expertise in that field and mm-hmm. I have no desire to have an expertise in that field, yep. um, which is in no way uh, dismissive of those who do no, in right, fact exactly. i admire yeah. it greatly it's just not me yep, yep. um the other thing that is always fascinating to me is that sometimes people have expertise in a particular field but does not help from an investment perspective <laughs> yes that's uh, so true so my father works in biotechnology which is quite an obscure field mm-hmm. and the average finance person who pretends to know about biotechnology is hilarious to him right All he's right, like I'll you bet. guys have not got the yeah, 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 about yeah. how anything works however he will tell you what the best technology is to mm-hmm. use for a particular function Again, a thing I'm not particularly well informed about. And yet it's not the stock that's done best. Correct. Yep. You know, it'll be by far the best technology, but mm-hmm. it's not the best business model yep. or whatever it might be. And they will have failed to do something that was very important, mm-hmm. you know, get the right, right influences on board or whatever it was. Yeah. Wasn't the stock to mm-hmm. buy in that field. So he thinks all the finance experts are wrong, but he would have lost money. So <laughs> no, that, that's true. So that, and that's the expertise can be a real double-edged sword to exactly that point, right? So mm-hmm. think about as you're buying mining stocks or anything else, um, in fact, by the way, I've also had some miners say to me, I'm in mining, so I definitely wouldn't buy a mining stock because I know how this works, which is also oh, funny as well. Oh, interesting. Um, different. Okay. I don't want to discourage people from necessarily even buying mining stocks, but mm. it goes both ways, right? So that idea of the just because you have a subject matter expertise mm. doesn't give you business model expertise necessarily, yeah. right? So we all know the old better mousetrap thing, build a better mousetrap. You know, mm. it's supposed to work until you convince someone to buy that. So if it's the psychology, the pricing, the business model, the distribution, the whatever else is, so many times the best of anything doesn't end up being the one that wins. It's the one that simply is coolest or cheapest or most fashionable or whatever the thing is. Um, that ends up being, winning, right? And that, and that is the absolute problem with subject matter expertise. In fact, there's also a decent body of expertise that say the smartest people don't make the best investors, which yeah. is lucky for me. Uh, be- <laughs> because it, you know they, they know so much, they're so intelligent, they're being right, you don't leave enough room for doubt and you don't you don't move outside your own level of expertise or area of expertise, I should say, for exactly that reason, as you talk about with, with other people, you know, miners or your father or other people, you're so fixated on what you think is important in this area, mm. you forget to think about it from a business perspective in a different way. You know, it's the old, well, I wouldn't do it, so no one else should want to do it either type stuff. Mm. I had a mate of mine who would never buy Foster shares way back in the old days because he thought VB was a terrible beer, right? Now, 
You, that, they my both... father was probably that guy, actually. He's, <laughs> he's a real beer connoisseur, right, and so he right. would never buy a terrible beer that would be so upsetting right, to him. Right, so, so, so don't buy the beer, but you still buy the shares, because if yeah. everyone else buys the beer, yeah. you, don't, like, you don't have to drink the beer. Just, just make, buy the shares make the profit, right? If everyone else is drinking terrible beer, great. Can, you know. Mm. So that, that idea of you know avoiding the company because you don't like its products, mm. it kind of boils an ethical investing at some level in some areas, but mm. rather, than, rather than kind of getting too far down that, that rabbit hole, just... You want the business that's going to be make the most money, quite frankly, at a decent price. That's rarely the very best beer is not going to be the best selling beer in the country, right? The very best biotech, to your point, may not well be the be the successful company for millions of reasons. Um, there is real value and understanding from a business model, business perspective, rather than the inputs that you may be most familiar with. So many fascinating conversations and I don't know how much this is helping people start a portfolio but it's it does help actually it well, does help to go these are the areas where you may have a strong bias or you might mm-hmm, feel that mm-hmm. you've got a heap of expertise it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be set up for success well you knew you asked me the right question Gemma because here's the here is the portfolio point okay the, the, what I what I would warn people against is the mm. Noah's Ark approach right mm-hmm. which is two of everything so <laughs> you know I, I coined that I like it if you mm, use yeah, that well uh, <laughs> but the whole idea of like you know I need to buy two miners two airlines two retailers Retailers, two banks, two insurance companies, two pick your topic, right? Two biotech mm. companies, whatever, mm. whatever. You don't diversification doesn't mean one of everything. In fact, again, if you do that, you might as well buy an ETF and go mm. fishing, right? Or shopping or golf, whatever your thing is. It means not having too much concentrated risk. Mm. And so let's think about risk for a second when it comes to portfolios. Risk is not having, you know, again, five banks is not diversification. Mm. Equally, a bank, a discretionary retailer, and pick something else. Um, an importer who are all exposed to the same risk, which is, for example, currency or local domestic economic activity, that's also not diversification. So diversification isn't by industry, it's not by sector, it's not by business operation. It's the type of things that impact on your success or failure as a business. If you think about, again, we talk about business model, right? So you ask the right question. If we break that back and say, what are the inputs here to success? What has to go well or badly to influence this business? If they're all the Australian consumer dollar, then they're not diversified, even if they're in different sectors, different you know parts of the country with different whatevers. If a falling Australian dollar or falling economic activity or change in the terms of trade are going to impact they, all these companies equally, that's not diversification. So think about who, why, how, where in terms of your portfolio components is much, much better than two or one of everything. And so we've got an airline and, a, and a, you know, again, airline consumer discretionary banking. Well, guess what? If Australia goes in a recession, all three companies get hit to more or less the same type of degree, different elements, different you know, extremes. But you know, you want maybe a you know um, Australian tech company does most of its business in the US, or you want a, an exporter who does most of its business in China, or whatever. You know, there are different ways. And that's just pure geography, right? It's a single example, but that kind of idea is when you think about building a portfolio. That's how to think about diversification: is the inputs into the risks, not the sector or the industry, which is kind of that top level. It feels like diversification, but it may not be. They're all awesome examples. What other traps do you see people falling into? Because I, I can tell you right now, the vast majority of investors I've met, and probably myself included, have made at least all of those mistakes that you've talked about. Probably not yeah. the two of everything. That tends not to be my failing. But the other ones, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so a lot of it's, again, because we've talked about diverse uh, portfolios here, not on the basis of arbitrary, you know, one of everything or ETFs mm. or whatever, um, one of the key ones is overconfidence. And so mm-hmm. you kind of mentioned what if the stock goes up before, and I'll come back to that a little bit in this answer. The, the If we think about the way a, st- a stock goes up, right? So we convince ourselves that, you know, as a stock picker, as someone who gives advice, mm. when something goes well, 
my members are geniuses. If something goes badly, <laughs> I'm an idiot, right? That's how this thing kind of tends to work. Mm. So it's, you know, when a stock goes up, you think, oh, that was quicker than I thought, but I thought that would happen eventually. So I guess I'm pretty much right, right? Yeah, yeah. And you can be sure if this is true. Now, if it's all purely just sentiment and no business improvement, you can claim, unless you literally, your investment thesis from the very beginning was, I think this business will continue to be ordinary, but people will start loving it. <laughs> if that's your thesis, great, knock yourself out, you're a genius, right? Otherwise, you've been just dead lucky. Mm. And that's okay too. Like you need some luck in investing, like take it if you get it. But then that's when you start to think about that stock and think, man, I don't think this was ever worth this price. I'm, you know, I'm going to take my lucky stars and sell and go. If you genuinely thought, look, this business could could grow by fivefold in five years and it gets in three years, then hey, you've just been early and that's okay too. So you've got to really know yourself and not have that overconfidence of believing that everything is due to your hard work that goes well, everything bad is someone else's, you know, bad luck or, or, or mismanagement. So overconfidence is really, really important. I think that particularly when you think about the way we build our portfolio. So going too hard too early in a particular area. So a hot tip from a couple of mates on a uranium stock, a lithium stock and a biotech. Um, yeah, they're, th- they're diversified, there are three of them. Is that diversified? Well, again, it is by industry potentially, it is by commodity potentially, but if it's all at that speculative lottery ticket end, that's also not really diversification. So think about you know what's gonna impact your portfolio, how, by whom, and if you start to, I often think the worst thing most investors can start with, Double-edged sword. If you start with a loss, you might give up and go away. If you start with a win, mm. you think you're a genius and you can do no wrong, right? And so that gets that's ugly in the other direction because you start over, you know, overemphasizing the, the the bets and the the smarts you think you have, and the market's going to come and get you at some point and remind you that you're not that great. Um, so I think overconfidence is a, is a really really big one. I think too thinking about um, back to the volatility thing, you know, what do you want out of your portfolio over what period of time? If you if misunderstanding yourself is probably the answer. If if you if you know you're someone who you want to think of yourself as a high flying tech investor, but realistically you're not really that sort of person. You can't really you don't have the stomach for it. And how about you just buy some you know relatively standard blue chips? Maybe you get eight percent. Maybe it's eight and a half. Maybe it's seven and a half. But overall you're going to do really well over the long term. Then do that right. So as you're listening to this, think about who you are and what you want to do as an investor. Also remember the odds of this stuff. So you know the. If the two cents stock doubles to four cents, I'm going to double my money. Is fine, but the probability on that again to the gambling thing. If the probability is one to hundred, well, again, if you either get lucky or you don't, but the chances are you're not going to. And if you do, don't don't believe you can do the next one as well. So that idea of just thinking about you know what stocks should you be invested in, what types of companies, how do you think about that portfolio construction? For most people, even if you think you're a high risk, high risk tolerance investor, you can you know big big um, the capacity for pain. You will almost certainly have less than you think you are. The old, it's the old thing about ninety percent of us think we're above average drivers, right? So <laughs> we all think, oh, I'll be fine when it happens. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And you go, oh god, I'm not really fine after all. So maybe start slow, live through some of this stuff, really feel it first, and then branch out as you develop that experience, rather than assuming up front and potentially creating a trap for yourself. Oh, that's so wise. I um, so we recently did some research about um, about gender and demographic age groups in our investor base. Okay, and it it jibes pretty well with what you see internationally as well. Right. So, um, it was really nice to see as young women coming through investing. So, really young women are that getting into awesome. investing, which is fantastic. Yeah. Actually, have bigger portfolios than young men. Right. My hypothesis is young men do silly stuff. Um, and it's not just my hypothesis. So one of the seminal... <laughs> Come on, you've, you've known young men before, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. You've known young men. I've been a young man. We know how this works. Well, also, also, I've worked in finance, which is like 99% young oh, men. Man, yeah, and right. so it's, it's... So the seminal paper on this topic, gender and investing, is that... And it's entitled Overconfidence and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Boys will be boys, I think yeah. is what it's called. Yeah. And it's basically... Young guys are like, I'm an absolute genius, trade the hell out of their portfolios, lose a lot of money, 
and then start oh, making better decisions. Right. The critical thing, if you're a bloke listening and you're going, you know, this mm-hmm. is rubbish, mm-hmm. blokes do just fine over time. Mm-hmm. Do not worry. Yeah. All the data says men have buckle loads more money oh, and yeah. far more investments over time yeah. than women do, yeah. and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Yep. Um, but it's encouraging to see women getting started because they tend to make good decisions from the beginning. Yep. Blokes tend to just... Get a little bit carried away. Mate, we know women are better investors. Like, Take I, you know, a few as, punches and then yeah. they start learning. Yeah. As a bloke, I can say that. Women, women are better investors than men, generally speaking, mm. because the traits that, the masculine traits are bad for investing. The volatility, the high need for activity, attention, you know, the need to chase the next big thing, the need to be the biggest bloke in the room, all that kind of stuff, right? It's all real. And, and you know, there's, there's a, a great book written by one of my ex-colleagues called Warren Buffett Invests Like a Girl. And the hypothesis of that whole book is the traits that he exhibits are most likely considered feminine traits. Now, They're again, not very alpha, are they? No, well, if you're, and to your point, like for the blokes listening here, I'm not saying you can't do it, you shouldn't do it, you can't try. I'm not saying you need to be a girl to make it successful. What I'm saying is think about, like, here's the thing, right? Do you want to make money or don't you? And mm-hmm. if you do, then put your ego in the box for a second and think about what do I need to do to be successful? And if you get that bit right, like that's kind of the, that's kind of the answer, right? So it's one of those things of, do you want to be right or do you want to make money? Because you can choose one or the other, and that's fine. If you want to go and prove yourself right, fine. As you say, Jeremy, you'll probably end up losing money and come back anyway. But if you need to do that for your own ego, knock yourself out. If you put your ego in a box and say, actually, you know what? Here is what makes sense. Some slow, thoughtful, deliberate activity, not being overconfident, that kind of stuff. Those psychological biases that young blokes fall into, that's really, really valuable. And the earlier you can get that, frankly, the, the quicker you'll get on the train. I was thinking about your comment about those early experiences and it's better if you don't lose. But there's a, a book I was recently reading Oh, it was a guy named Ramit Sethi. Um, Sethi? I believe it's Sethi. Um, anyway, he's a US guy. Right. He's a young guy. He's, he, anyway, it's called I Will Teach You To Be Rich or something. Yeah, one of those sorts of yeah, books, yeah. right? But it's very simple, very barefoot investor, okay, very okay. straightforward. Yep. And his principle for why he wrote the book and how he teaches people was he had $2,000 mm-hmm. invested in the market. Two weeks later, he had $1,000. And then he learned how to invest. <laughs> and I was like, it's such a beautiful setup, oh, right? Man. It was kind of like... I had this great idea. I thought I was a champion. He went, like he went to Harvard or MIT or something. He's not a stupid guy by yeah, any yeah, means. Yeah, yeah. yeah, smartest guy in the room. That's, I love well, that would have been a smart room, but still, yeah, yeah learned the hard way. Yeah. And then all of his principles, like just buy a bunch of ETFs and sit on it. No, it's, it's, it's overconfidence. It's, it's intelligent people who are used to being successful. Mm. I'm smart. I must be able to invest. I'll just go and do it. Yeah. Right. I, I did the same thing. The first, I, I, again, showing my age, I had coming like sausage software, a computer share back pre ninety nine, like that sort of stuff, and. Most of I sold for a loss and kind of, I just bought stuff because I thought I should, right? No, no, I don't have to learn this stuff. I'll just buy some stocks because, you know, <laughs> how hard can it be, right? I'm a young, smart bloke. I'll buy some stocks. Um, and literally, I, had, I went through it. So 97, 98, 99 was pretty much a debacle. And it was late 98, early 99 where I actually started to kind of go, actually, I probably should think about how, you know, how I actually should invest and work mm. out what to read. And, what, you know, and, th- and that's when I got to the Warren Buffetts of the world and the, and the Peter Lynch's and the Phil Fishers. And that starts to build that out. But... For a long time before that, this is nothing about portfolios, by the way. For a long time before that, that was, <laughs> it was just like, hey, how, can, how hard can it be? I'm a smart guy, right? Mm. And of course, you can't do anything else. You can't just sit in the car and say, how hard can it be? Or, you know, riding a bike, how hard can it be? The answer is going to fall off a few times. Knowing, kind of understanding from someone else how to do this well, kind of makes sense. Oh, but we are on the portfolio topic because this okay, is a good, lot good. of what not to do at the oh, beginning, totally. right? Yeah, and yeah. if you have done this... Mm-hmm. And by the way, I get this question most frequently from young men. Right, so it explains that the context yeah, is yeah, actually yeah, quite yeah. valuable. Yeah. Um, and also the ASX Investor Days, uh, a lot of young men come up, and mm-hmm. young women as well, but they come up and they say, this is their first question, how do I build a portfolio? Yeah, nice. Which is great. Yeah, Beats the hell out of yep. how do I buy and, a lot of crazy kind of, stuff. Was it, what is it the first path to understanding stuff with knowing you don't know anything? I've, I've completely made that quote up. But you get the idea. The <laughs> idea of like, actually, I need to ask the question. That's 
that that is itself like that's such a seminal moment right because that's the point at which you go maybe i don't know everything mm. maybe i should start to find out and again to you know without wanting to to big note the podcast for the sake of it the fact people listening to this now is exactly that right they're saying i kind of would like a bit of help here I, I don't necessarily know everything i know i don't know everything that's the best place to be. If you're listening to this right now, you've you're past most of those things, right? Because you've not, you know, you can't just do it yourself. Mm. It's like, hey, I might just hear a few things from a few people and try and learn from experience, build some stuff up. As you say, asking the questions is the first part. The best part about the world now, and you and I must have started a relatively similar time. You're a few years ahead of me, but there was none of this when mm-hmm. we started. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were lucky, you would find a book. Yeah. Um, written by a white guy usually in the US. <laughs> right. um, you know, her yes, Buffett yes. would have been 70 at this time, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. it was, yeah. 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 So it was, there was not a lot to go on. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. now, take your pick, right? It's an infinite yeah. universe of brilliant sources to help you. And that's funny actually, you make a good point because there are so many more resources now. We, we well, I did, you were later than me, started in, in, at a time when discount brokerage, do-it-yourself brokerage was kind of just literally in its infancy, right? So before then, you'd call the old bloke who'd been around for 40 years and say, hey, what should I buy? He'd say, buy some BHP. That, that whole kind of, and whether that was good or bad advice, you know, there was less there was less ability to kind of get yourself into trouble because, you know, you couldn't just go on and say to your broker, hey, put half my portfolio in Afterpay and see how we go. I mean, you could have, but you wouldn't, and you probably would have talked you out of it, and again, maybe that would have been a bad thing given Afterpay, but you know what I mean? That kind of idea of, you know, cheap brokerage and, and being able to be self-directed and invest, do your own thing, is so wonderful, it's so freeing, so much opportunity. But... Early on, and, and now it's much better as you say, but early on it was like, so I got all this power, but no resources, no skills, no training. No, what do I do? I don't know. I'll jump on and buy Sashi software as I did, right? It's like, I can do that. That's fine. It cost me 30 bucks for brokers, I think it was then. Um, you know, how hard can it be? And I think, but now, as you say, there are so many resources like this podcast and others, um, plenty of books, plenty of articles where you can actually start to learn some of this stuff and just minimize, learn from other mistakes, right? It's so much easier to learn from other people's mistakes than having to make your own. I am. Um, you and I had very different experiences because I was an eighteen-year-old girl who rang up a broker, and I got probably the kid who failed at high school. Oh no! Um, you know, who's like the youngest guy in the broking firm, who uh, you know probably was only there because his dad worked in it. Like, just you know, like they gave me the least mature, experienced oh, no. person. Okay. I don't think his voice had broken yet. Like, it was ridiculous. Like, so I did not. I don't think I got oh, mature, okay, valuable fair, experience no, fair, fair, fair. Um, and advice. I knew what I wanted to buy. Um, I was also reasonably conservative, so it was fine. I think I bought a bank, right, but it right. um, it was not quite the same. I didn't have like this mature mentor helping me. They were like, "Oh God, she's got no money at all. Where's right. the kid? Where's the young kid? Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, um, yeah. You can have all the ones that nobody wants. Get Where's started. the working experience, kid? We've got to get one of those in here. Yeah, yeah, right, the photocopy right. room when that was a thing. You're younger than me, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so one point you made is that people at different stages of life do have completely different needs. And we talked a lot about young men because they seem yes, to be the ones yes. that we most get this question about. And also when you're starting out is when you make the most mistakes, yeah. we hope, yeah, yeah. right? So, but other people at different stages of life will have different needs mm-hmm, and they might mm-hmm. make different mistakes or have different things to keep in mind. What else yeah. What else do we need to keep an eye yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, age range or age stage, I think is really important. So if you think about, again, it's, it's building the right portfolio for your needs, mm-hmm. aims, goals, objectives, all those words that we have to use to keep ASIC happy and, and legitimately so. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding, you know, what is it that you're investing for? What is your objective? What is your time frame? What is your risk time? So that's what we've already talked about. Age stage is really, really important, right? Because I'm, a, like I said, I'm 100% in shares myself. Mother-in-law is the same. She's retired, right? So she is the almost the opposite of what I'm going to tell you now because it depends again on both risk tolerance, ability, and that age range. Now, if you know you need your capital at some point in the short-term future, then you want to make sure you're not in 
hugely volatile stuff. You want to be in cash a bit earlier. You'll probably want to de-risk your portfolio, at least in terms of volatility, and just the sheer potential for loss, right? Your chance of losing all your money in some five cent miner is much, much higher than losing all your money in Woolworths, just by definition, right? So you want to think about that to make your portfolio less aggressive as you get closer to needing the money. The other thing is if you're drawing an income, how is that income being generated? Now, if you're lucky enough to have a large enough portfolio and you're gonna not sell a portfolio and just literally use the income flow, dividends, distributions, that's a very different type of portfolio than if you need to sell a small portion of your portfolio every year to fund your living expenses. And again, think about how that gets sold down. Do you want income producing stocks? Do you want growth stocks? Tax situations, of course, let's not get too much into that, but broadly speaking, we know that capital gains and dividends are taxed differently. Frank credits are, done, are used differently for different people. So in think about how that bit works. And again, for those with SMSFs, different story again. So the, the role and the goal of the portfolio, super, super important to consider, and it changes through life. So. I don't necessarily think you want to take super risk when you're 18 and no risk when you're 65. I think that's the, yeah. the wrong way to look at it. In fact, arguably, if you're starting at 18 with this amount of money, you need to take less risk because you've got so many years to compound, you can kind of afford to, right? On the flip side, you also don't want to take risk at 60 trying to catch up because throwing good money after bad is also stupid. So that's exactly kind of why it's really valuable to think about. Is it just age? No. Is it just risk tolerance? No. Is it just income need? No. It's that combination of those. Now, hard on the podcast, so for each individual person listening, here's what you should do or what everyone should do. There is no single answer. But if you think about these kinds of questions, I hope for, by now people are starting to have some pennies drop saying, okay, well, I'm not a risk taker and I'm gonna retire in five years, so here's what I, the things I might need to consider. Or I'm 24, I wanna make some bets on some areas I think I know a lot about, so here's what I'll do. They're the kind of combinations of considerations. And again, think about how many stocks you wanna own and to how diversified you wanna be. The other thing about diversification, I think for most people, and we talk about young blokes again, but whether it's young guys, young girls, just be diversified enough that, particularly again, while you're learning, the last thing we want to do is we want to scare people out of the market, right? Yeah. There are so many people who finally got in the market in 2006, 2007 because they saw a bull market that went for years. And they're like, I've, okay, fine, I give up. I'm getting in the market. Okay, shares are doing so, so well. The guy next door, the girl next door getting rich. My brother-in-law is getting rich. They're the worst people, by the way. I love my brother-in-law, but <laughs> if the brother-in-law is doing well, you, you know, that's the one that really hurts. Mm. Um, you know, okay, I'll finally, I'll finally do it, I'll finally do it. 2009, the market crashes. I knew those people were wrong. I never should have done this. I'm never doing this again. I'm selling everything, mm. right? And so that's the, you know, that, that volatility piece is super, super valuable. If you've bought one, two or three stocks, by definition, your portfolio is super overweight to any of those stocks. If one falls by 10%, that hurts a lot, right? If you've got 20 stocks, it hurts a lot less. So arguably for most people, getting to 10, 12, 15 stocks as quickly as reasonably possible is a really good start before you start to make those extra bets, right? Get to a point where you're just simply gonna have a less volatile experience, you're less likely to be scared out of it early on, and you give yourself a good platform to start from. That's brilliant advice. I will say also people, uh, when you get started, so when I started, I was pretty conservative, bought a bank that was sort of natural for me to buy really conservative stuff. Right, right. And I got more risk taking as time went yeah, on. Because yeah, I was yeah. like, I can wear 20%, actually it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, and that's the thing, you learned that about yourself, right? And that, yeah. was, that was the beautiful thing, right? You kind of went, okay, this works for me. Now, mm. someone else in that circumstance bought the bank, bought yeah. another bank and then went, full 10%, I can't cope with that. Yeah. I'm not gonna buy another one of those tech stocks, I'm gonna buy you know, another mm. bank or another something else. And again, that because you're building progressively, mm. you don't have to have the final solution. Like by the time I'm 60, I will have this. It's not necessarily even right now, I should be at this point. It's literally buy one, see how I feel, buy a second, see how I feel, yeah. buy a third, see how I feel. That happened to me. Okay, I realize I don't know much about, as much about biotech as I thought I did. <laughs> or you know what, I seem to be good at investing in consumer brands companies because I'm at the shopping center most weekends and I kind of get what's going on. Um, or I knew that Coles was gonna struggle because I saw that their 
in store they were doing X, Y, and Z, right? Those mm. sort of things start to, you start to learn that stuff. And when you know your own strengths and weaknesses, you can build a portfolio to take advantage of that or to, to be supported by that, rather feel like you need to be generic about how you build it. That is awesome. Now, that's lots of theory. Yes. You and I both know everyone wants to know what to buy. <laughs> <laughs> we just told them a diversified portfolio. Come yeah, on. yeah, absolutely. You get this question much more than I do. But So what sort of stuff do you look to, to put in a portfolio? If someone came to you today yeah. and said, right, I'm good to go. I've got some cash. Help me. What would you do? Oh, man. So, I mean, it depends on the individual again. Like, it, again, I can't give a sort of general yeah, yeah. across the... All right, fine. <laughs> a disclaimer out of the way. Yeah. Um, all right, so... A stock I bought most re- a couple of stocks I bought most recently, mm-hmm. just to put it, put it straight out there. Um, I think for diversification benefit and just straight out, because I think the companies and the, the ideas are, are worthwhile, mm. um, the NASDAQ ETF. So we'll get the ETFs out of the way really oh, early, right? Interesting. NASDAQ okay. ETF, which is NDQ, is the code. Yeah. Um, so again, we know people don't love ETFs necessarily, and I get it. I wanted to have in my ASX portfolio exposure to some of the best companies in the US. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like that. Right? I, don't, I don't buy Australian ETFs for Australian exposure. I think that's kind of... We can buy stocks here, right? Yeah. Unless you've got a US trading account, which people should do, by the way. But if you haven't, NASDAQ ETF is a great way to do it. You can do that via NABTRADE. There you go. 14.95 brokerage. It starts at, so it's the as your Australian brokerage. Okay. You can buy US, UK, Germany, and Hong Kong. How good is that? There you go. Yeah. Muscle out, I like it. Call it ESP, problem solved, do it that way instead. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and by the way, I lo- um, all right, let's, let's do that. So when you open your NABTRADE international brokerage account, mm. some, I, I think I you have to do something extra to get it added. Just do it. Mm. Just do it. Seriously. You know what? I, so random. This is not an ad for Nap Trade. Invest overseas. Like if you're listening to this right now, you're interested enough in investing to want to mm-hmm. buy the best companies on the planet. There's mm-hmm. some wonderful companies in the ASX. There's some wonderful companies overseas. Why would you limit yourself just to two percent of the world's markets? Madness, mm-hmm. madness, madness, madness. So, um, okay. So there you go. So, so I wasn't going to do this, but I will. Um, the three holdings I have in the US are Amazon, App, uh, Amazon, Google, and Berkshire Hathaway. So there you go. If I'm internationally investing, put the ETF aside, open your Nap Trade international account. Um, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's business, just the so best So class A ever. or class B? Oh, <laughs> I wish. The, the class, I was with my boss today, the class B is like $430 Australian, $1,000. Like we can, yeah. you know, among yeah. friends. So there's a I can reason. I sell my house and buy a class A share, yeah. The reason we talk about class A and class B for anyone listening is that class mm. A shares are mm-hmm. 430000 Australian dollars, <laughs> right? So they were the ones that he started with. And because correct, they started in correct. the 1960s, that's what they're worth now. Mm-hmm. That is the compounded value yeah. of investing with yeah, Warren yeah, Buffett. Yeah. They uh, they did a split effectively mm-hmm. and allowed normal people to buy them <laughs> because very few people can afford $430,000 yes, yes, yes. for one share. I could trade in the roles and buy a Berkshire Hathaway share or I could yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sell your house. <laughs> um, and uh, and so, so if you want to buy Berkshire Hathaway and yes. you've heard that it costs $430,000, that is true. <laughs> that is true if you buy Class A. Correct. You can buy Class B, yes. which is exactly the same. It's just a split version, so it's Correct. just a, a smaller proportion effectively. Correct. And Class B's few hundred. Yeah, BRKB is the code. Right, um, thank you. I, I, only for the sake of the pedant in me. They're not exactly the same because you have slightly less voting uh, rights with the B-class shares, but Buffett owns the rest of the business and he's going to vote his shares and his mate's going to vote his way anyway, so don't worry about that. <laughs> Seems they're, they're unlikely to be having a substantial impact. <laughs> they're technically slightly, slightly different. I'll say that just to, just to clear the air, but mm, yeah, same, same, same shares. I, I'm more than happy with my B-class shares. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. Mm. Um, I, Google, is, I think, has the most optionality of any company probably on the planet. So many irons and so many fires. Search is nuts. Ad is nuts. They're doing self-driving. They're doing maps. They're doing like just so much cool stuff. Really cool. And Amazon is the best and biggest retail on the planet. They will continue to grow. Their numbers, as we record this, they were up 24% in the most recent quarter. Um, sales, I mean, and that's not just 24%. That's $16 billion 
worth of additional sales. Now I own all three shares for full disclosure. Um, open a NAB trade international account, buy those straight out. Um, here in Australia. Um, no advice implied. Correct. Um, I, sorry, it's my FSL, not yours. Oh yes, okay. <coughs> okay, I can do that. Mm. You can't, but I can. Mm. Um, the, uh, the, so in Australia, uh, I like, so I'm not a thematic investor, mm. but I really like some companies actually share the same theme, which is kind of weird to say. I don't look, I'm not a top-down thematic guy, right? But if I see something I think is attractive, often the two or three companies that share the same thing, so the same theme in some ways, but it's bottom up. So Australia to China, I think is going to be a huge, huge ongoing trend right now. That's Australian products, so clean, green Australia into China. I think China's tourists and, and um, students into Australia. It, it can't not grow at phenomenal long-term compound rates, you know? And we talked about the compounding of eight or 10%. If we, you know, China's students and, and tourists are growing at almost exactly that rate. And if you compound that over time, which it is, it doesn't mean it will always do that. You can't just extrapolate, but massive, massive opportunity. So Treasury wine estates, so Penfolds, Wins, Lindemans, um, they are doing a spectacular job of getting really good, um, high-priced wines into Asia. Mm-hmm. The price, they're getting volume growth of, I want to say 20 odd percent, and price growth about 20% as well. Something like that, give or take, don't, don't quote me directly, but they are managing to get more higher priced wines into the fast, you know, rapidly, um, Ch- China's richest 10, 12, 15% are just growing at a massive, massive rate. More millionaires in China being minted than anywhere else around the world. They're going to want to buy quality Australian wines and international wines. Treasury really well placed to be successful there. So I think that's a, that's a good one. Um, the last one I'll throw at you is Kogan. So speaking of Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, Other end of the think, spectrum? Well, I don't think you need to choose either, right? So this mm. is the thing. I think if Amazon wins in Australia, Kogan will be drafted beautifully. If someone doesn't win, Kogan's probably going to win instead. Mm-hmm. They've got 1.4 million of us, I think, shop at Kogan every year. They grew their database by 14% in the last most recently reduced released numbers. They are launching a million verticals. They've taken the Amazon strategy and just turbocharged it, right? So there's Kogan Travel was most recently announced. Um, there's Kogan Money. There's Kogan Super. There's Kogan... I think whatever you want to do, there's a Kogan version of it, right? Um, and they, what they've done is what Amazon do really well. You grab a customer and you have as many things as they can possibly buy and you just pitch them all. Hmm. So if you want anything, Kogan's got it. And once you're a customer of theirs, once you're on their database, they send millions of emails. Hmm. Um, it's just it's a really successful business. They are data-driven. Um, I think they will be much bigger over time. They'll be much more successful over time. They'll become, I think, for many people, the default place. The Amazon of Australia to some degree. I don't want to say that too loudly because it feels a bit cliche and a bit marketing-y, but that idea of taking what Amazon's done really, really well in the US and around the world and doing it in Australia, I think it's a huge opportunity. They're, they're just they make every post a winner. I think they'll keep doing it. It's a really interesting example, just for my benefit, because I haven't looked closely at it. So where are they? Are they exclusively Australia? Are they... Kogan? Yeah. Yeah, just in Australia. Right. Yeah, and they're planning yeah. to move offshore? Or are they really Not focusing just on They're seem to be focusing here on the... Oh, they're in New Zealand as well, I should say. So, yeah. so Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Um, but New Zealand's kind of like the West State, so it's kind of West State, so it's kind of <laughs> East Island. I love Island. hearing that. They yeah, yeah. Well, it. they call us the West Island. Call them the East Islands. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, yeah, Australia and New Zealand. I don't... I don't... It'd be interesting to see, you know. I don't think they would naturally... So they made their name here very specifically with with home brand kind of electronics, right, TVs in particular. I don't, I think that ship might have sailed in terms of a breakthrough strategy for somewhere else. Could you just open an e-commerce site in Taiwan or Indonesia or Malaysia or um, France or the UK? Probably not. And frankly, most of the developed Western world, Western Europe, US is probably reasonably well kind of colonized by Amazon now already. Um, I don't imagine they go international, but I wouldn't put it past them. They could probably do it reasonably cost-effectively just by simply replicating the tech, which is the beauty of online businesses, right? How much does it cost to open a 
you know, another operation in, in Vietnam, probably nothing. You literally, you put a .vn, you know, at the end of your website, I mean, simply a little bit, um, and you find a warehouse, most of it's drop shipped anyway. So it's kind of, you know, it's not too hard. I don't think it'll do it, but it's not too hard to do if they wanted to. That's really interesting. Hmm. Any further thoughts for people? If I was going to wrap it up, I think what I would say to people is think very carefully about who you are as an investor and how you see your approach to the markets, how you're going to feel. Again, that pre-commitment idea, think about that. Think about what you're buying. Think about how you put it in your portfolio um, and then build that portfolio as quickly as you can to minimize the volatility as you get used to it, get your your sea legs, and then start to go from there. Scott? You're prolific on social media. Do some fantastic research. Obviously, that is your core business. You've got amazing insights for people. You talk about heaps of stuff. I mean, telling people to go and get a better rate in the home loan, all sorts of things. I think that's really cool, right? Because one of the things that we always do is we focus on stocks and we forget that you could go and save yourself $4,000 a year, which, you know, you can spend on stocks if you want. Um, how do people find you and keep up to date with your stuff? Yeah, so all over the place. The company website is fool.com.au, unsurprisingly. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at TMF Scott P. So TMF the Motley Fool, Scott P, and the Motley Fool itself is on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and I'm on Facebook at Scott Phillips Money as well. Right, lots of places. All over the socials. <laughs> all over the socials, and you'll probably see this all over the socials with you on it. There you go, there awesome. you go. I'm one of the cool kids. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep up. I'm on Instagram recently. I'm not sure how this really? going for me. I'm just, I'm trying to fill it out. I don't do, I don't do smash dabos. I don't do food photos. Uh, so I'm not sure if I belong properly on Instagram. I'm doing my best. I look at other people's beautiful houses and just feel envious mostly. That's my Instagram. Oh, that looks so nice. Um, Scott Phillips from Motley Fool. Thank you so much for joining us. That was, yeah, it's fantastic. Appreciate it. Thanks, Gemma. As always, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. We hope it's been helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth creating a portfolio in this case. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, as you can hear, we take it very seriously. We love hearing from you, so please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. That's great. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.